0: Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up
1: to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. GC, we received some news last week about the Supreme Court's investigation into the Dobbs leak What can you tell us about that? Yes. So the court issued a report last week
0: on its investigation into the leaker and essentially admitted that it has failed to identify the person. The investigation is not technically closed, according to the report, but the
1: report conveys the court's more or less
0: final conclusion that the leaker will not be found.
1: Unfortunately, I think that's right. You know, the Chief Justice tasked the Supreme Court Marshal with conducting the investigation. Now, based on the report issued by the marshal, she hired outside help and looked at a number of people and potential avenues through which the leak could have occurred. Still, some basic investigative steps that are typical in a criminal investigation were missing. The report says the marshal asked for and received phone records and call logs from certain employees, but there's no mention of subpoenas or warrants being sought for that information. Now, of course, she wouldn't have the authority to unilaterally issue subpoenas or warrants, but those are typical steps that you would expect to see in a normal criminal investigative process, though, again, they would likely have to involve DOJ uh, for those types of things to be sought. Now, the report also mentions that some employees admitted to violating the court's confidentiality requirements by telling their spouses the expected outcomes of certain cases ahead of time, And again, in the report, there's no mention whether the marshal looked at those spouses' phone records or even questioned the spouses. All in all, this is a disappointing conclusion to the leaker investigation, and I worry that without someone being held accountable for this egregious breach of trust, another incident like this is more likely to occur again in the future. Now, in the report, the marshal did mention that some additional new measures have been put in place to enhance IT security, uh, enhance physical document security and that type of thing to help make sure this doesn't happen again. Uh, but that was not disclosed publicly, it was kept confidential to the members of the court. The report also mentioned that the investigation was reviewed by Michael Shurtov, uh, the former DHS secretary, head of the criminal division at DOJ and a former US attorney, and he said she did a thorough job. And finally, The investigation was complicated by the fact that when this leak occurred, uh, it was during the pandemic, and more people were working from home than usual, and there weren't good policies and procedures surrounding security uh, when information was taken home to work on. Uh, But again, this is a very unsatisfying and very disappointing conclusion to the leak investigation. Yeah.
0: you know, the incentive to leak is always going to be there, even if it's just, you know, I'm mad at the court and I want to punish them. And unless this leaker is punished, you know, that incentive is not diminished. So it's too bad. Right. GC, what do we have on the orders front? Sure. We have uh, a bunch of new cases. I'll highlight a few of them for you. Uh, We have counterman versus Colorado. In that case, the court will decide just what qualifies as a true threat, which is unprotected speech under the First Amendment. The question is, does the speaker have to know or intend that his statement is threatening violence, or is it sufficient that a reasonable person would view the statement as threatening violence? Uh, Then our friends over at the Pacific Legal Foundation have Tyler versus Hennepin County, which will decide whether the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on excessive fines prevents the government from confiscating and selling your house to satisfy a tax debt and then keeping all the profits in excess of your debt. Seems... Manifestly unjust to me, but we'll see what uh, the Supreme Court says, the Eighth Amendment says about that. Then we have Groff versus DeJoy. The court will clarify Title VII's undue burden test for deciding when an employer can refuse to give an employee a religious accommodation. And in a pair of consolidated immigration cases, the court will clarify the meaning of the term an offense relating to obstruction
1: of justice, which is a kind of crime for which a non-citizen can be deported. Well, we also got our first opinion of the term. It was in a case called Ariano versus McDonoghue. This was a unanimous decision written by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, where the court held that a law setting the effective date for veterans' service disability claims was not subject to equitable tolling. In other words, judges don't have the power to change those statutory deadlines in the interest of justice. The court said that the text of the law made it clear that Congress did not want the courts to have equitable tolling power over these deadlines. One other interesting tidbit related to this, GC, this was the first time we've seen justices read their opinions from the bench since the beginning of COVID. And since Justice Barrett joined the court during COVID, uh, this was the first time she has delivered an opinion from the bench. So it's good to see Uh, some normality returning back to the court. (laughs) Well, we also got our first dig of the
0: uh, term. Now, a dig stands for dismissed as improvidently granted. In other words, the court says we should not have granted certiorari in this case. The case was in re grand jury, which was going to decide what standard to apply to claims of attorney-client privilege when a lawyer's advice is mixed between both legal and non-legal advice. Now, when the court digs a case uh, it can be hard to know why they did it they don't issue an opinion in this case my guess is that although the justices are interested in the issue the fact that this case comes out of a grand jury where all the relevant parties and documents are sealed makes it a bad vehicle to explain their reasoning but on the other hand they knew that going into the case so i could be wrong zach as a former prosecutor you know about
1: grand jury proceedings what do you think I think that's probably right. But at the end of the day, who really knows? You know, grand jury proceedings are confidential with some very limited exceptions. So I suspect the justices wanted to wait until they could consider the issue in a case with a more fully developed and public factual record. But again, we don't really know why the justices chose to dig this case. Hmm.
0: Well, next up, our interview with Professor Elon Worman right after this.
2: Want the inside scoop on what's happening here at the Heritage Foundation? Check out Heard at Heritage, an all-new show replacing the Heritage Events podcast. It'll feature cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement and, of course, the Heritage Foundation's premier events and programming brought straight to you. Check it out at heritage.org podcasts.
0: We are joined today by Professor Ilan Wurman of the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. Professor, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to talk about two of your books, but uh, first of all, I want to start off, what made you want to be a law professor?
2: Well, I'm what you call a case of revealed preferences, not stated preferences. So I could not have told you what I wanted to do with my uh, legal degree when I was in law school. But then I ended up publishing a lot. I published a student note on actually the Fourth Amendment, suspicionless drug searches of welfare recipients. The doctrine didn't make any sense. The, these are special needs cases. And the Supreme Court was saying things like, well, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply. It's not a search, which is ridiculous. And I discovered that these are unconstitutional conditions problems. And if you apply them you know, to, to that uh, doctrine, it solves all the paradoxes and puzzles. So that was kind of fun, solving a legal puzzle. I published two other things when I clerked. Then I uh, published... This first book that we're going to talk about, A Debt Against the Living, An Introduction to Originalism, which I thought was going to be a trade book. I wanted it to be a commercial book. Uh, but uh, then none of the commercial books presses would take it because they all thought I had too much faith in the intelligence of my uh, fellow man, I guess, my readers. Uh, but I wasn't a professor yet, so I didn't think I had a good shot at the academic books uh, presses. But then Cambridge took that book, and I published some more. And finally, someone told me, Why don't you get paid to do this? You know, it was coming to the point where I would be at the law firm, and people would ask me, Oh, what do you do for fun? And I said, I write law review articles for fun. What do you do? You know, isn't that what everyone does? So finally, it just that was a case of revealed preferences. Maybe this is what I was meant to be doing.
0: Gotcha. And so then you uh, joined. What is it called? They called the meat market for professors.
2: Yes. And okay. I do not envy anyone who has to go through that process. But yes, it's, it's colloquially called the meat market. Uh, I think more formally, it's called the AALS, which is the Association of American Law Schools, a hiring conference, which used to happen uh, in a hotel in DC. And I think it was in November, or maybe it was a, a bit earlier every year. It's obviously been canceled for COVID for a couple of years now. So it's a bit awkward. The schools kind of do their own thing. But yeah, I, I, I did that uh, and ended up at ASU.
0: Okay. And now you specialize on constitutional law, a little bit of constitutional interpretation, constitutional theory, and administrative law. Uh, why those three topics? Again, I think it's probably a case of revealed preferences. <laughs> uh,
2: just uh, well, in this case, you know, there is maybe more of a profound um, normative commitment in a way. At the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm an originalist, and I try to. Uh, to take uh, the evidence where it leads us, or let the evidence take me sort of where it leads me, so I don't have any sort of pre-commitment to, like, my second book on the 14th Amendment. I went into it wanting to see, you know, what is the original meaning of the 14th Amendment? Maybe there should be an introduction, like my first book, an introduction to originalism. And as I came to read all the scholarship on it, I concluded that actually most people are probably wrong about (laughs) what they think the 14th Amendment uh, means. Uh, On the other hand, you know, would I wake up every morning and be as excited to do what I do if I didn't think think it was important and impactful. Probably not, right? So I do have some sort of commitment to the founding. I believe the founding was a great moment uh, in world history. I think they gave us this truly incredible improvement, as Madison would say, against this, you know, uh, on the natural condition of mankind. We are indebted to that improvement. I think the 14th Amendment and the second founding is a similar improvement upon this original founding, this mm-hmm. first founding. And if I didn't believe in that, if I didn't believe in the second, founding and the constitution that they gave us and the constitution that we have today, would I wake up and want to write about it all the time? I don't know. I don't know, but I do believe in it very Mm -hmm. strongly, and that's why I write
0: what I I write. So your interest in constitutional law and administrative law, do you see those two as stemming from a Common source? Or are they different?
2: I do see them stemming from a common source because when I say administrative law, I really mean structural constitutional law, or advanced okay. constitutional law. I care more about non-delegation, unitary executive theory, Article Three judicial power. Basically, the second half of a administrative law course. I mm-hmm. guess some professors treat it as the first half, which I think is probably too hard for students to do that way. But there's you know the whole one half of administrative court uh, course, administrative law course. Whether the first or the second is going to be on the APA and rulemaking and adjudication and the APA processes for it. I do love teaching that, but my
0: research is more on the structural constitutional law side. So I do, I, gotcha. I do see them as connected. So you, you even wrote a casebook in administrative law. I'm oh, all what 700 pages or so of that. Uh, but we're going to talk about whoa, 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 whoa. That's a, that would be a tiny casebook. I, mean, I think it's like 1300. <laughs> oh, is it really but,
2: 1300? But, you know, there's a couple appendices uh, in there and and so on. Uh, but uh, it's h- eminently readable. I will say that. So if you took administrative law and you are confused, the goal of the case- casebook was to have a traditional casebook but with a hornbook quality style to it in the material that leads up to the cases and the notes and questions after the cases so it might help clarify uh, if, if there's any confusion and it's only two hundred dollars i think
0: <laughs> okay well uh, next time i get a bonus or something maybe i'll check into that so but your other two books uh, first one a debt against the living an introduction to originalism give us the overview so this book uh, I wrote because
2: I was uh, a law student in the early 2010s, so 2010 to 2013, and I was interested in originalism instinctually, I thought I was an originalist, and I looked for a short narrative, single narrative introduction to originalism, and to my surprise, there wasn't one. There wasn't one. So there have been lots of great professors who have written interesting originalist theories, Randy Barnett had a book which I read mm-hmm. Jack Balkin had a book which I read there's as a Matter of Interpretation which is a you know, maybe that's more introductory, but it's also a particular theory of originalism, and there's been tons of scholarship since then. And so what I basically did is, when I got out of law school, I thought, gee, maybe there should be this introduction to originalism, and I did all the work for everybody. So I read through all the books and all the competing theories and all the law review articles, and I, what I tried to do was to just distill it into here are the key findings and conclusions of originalism mm-hmm. over the last four decades of scholarship. But as it turned out... This is more true of my 14th Amendment book, but it's also true of my originalism book. It's sort of a flavored introduction. It is, at the end of the day, sort of my account, of, uh, uh, my understanding of the best account for originalism. I do think the way I write it is sort of a big tent argument that brings in a lot of other originalist thinkers. Uh, so, for example, the key move in the book, uh, which I think most originalists will agree with, Though perhaps not all, is that we separate this question of what does a constitution or statute actually mean, we separate the question of its meaning and legal content from whether that statute or constitution is binding, right? Something other than its meaning makes it enforceable or binding. Mm-hmm. So we separate those questions out. And I think there's a lot of agreement. Uh, there are some variations you know, on the first question. How do we figure out what the constitution means? Well, we treat it as a public instruction, as Gary Lawson would say, like a fried chicken recipe. Though he He's kind of moved on from that. Now he thinks it's a fiduciary instrument. But no matter how you, you know, within, no matter how in the weeds you get, everyone agrees that it's in some form, the meaning is public. Mm-hmm. Right? Maybe it's legal meaning. Maybe there's a fiduciary background to it. But the point is, this is an accessible public meaning, not some, you know, secret or esoteric or poetic meaning. And the question of whether the Constitution is binding, such that we should follow that original meaning, is a separate and independent question. And on that question, more originalists disagree. And I mm-hmm. try to, you know, give a sense of the disagreement. Randy Barnett has a sort of natural rights, presumption of liberty, a very sort of libertarian approach. He thinks the Constitution secures natural rights, and therefore it is binding. A lot of conservatives have a popular sovereignty theory, where it was rooted in this initial act of popular sovereignties. Others say that it enables self-government, current uh, democratic um, uh, legitimacy. And I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. And what I say in, in my book is, look, a constitution to be legitimate and binding has to balance self-government and liberty. These are two competing objectives. And as long as we the people, as a matter of present day social facts, sort of agree that it it, it meets this balance in, in light of, you know, notwithstanding the inevitable disagreement we're going to have over it, then I think that's what makes a constitution binding. Now, are there some disagreements, like, Randy says, "Well, it's really got to meet natural rights." But the point is, the question of legitimacy and meaning is are, are separate. That's sort of what I advance in the book. So it is
0: introductory, mm-hmm.
2: but I do think it is a slightly flavored introduction too.
0: Okay, and you're tracing the history sort of of originalism, and and I think a lot of people will think when they hear originalism, they think, "Well, this is some novel idea created by you know me, Bork, and Scalia in the '80s." But you actually trace it applesauce. <laughs>
2: That's ridiculous, right? (laughs) Yeah, tell me why. I'm anticipating your question. You're absolutely right. Tell me why, which is look, originalism was always the way they did law. Okay? Now, a lot of people, I've had debates about originalism where it's very clear that my debating opponent, the last thing that he or she read was the 1985 Law Review article by H. Jefferson Powell, like the original <laughs> understanding of original intent. Well, the framers didn't intend their intentions to govern. Uh, and so. But look, the second half of H. Jefferson Powell's article is, here's what they did expect to govern. And it turns out the original public meaning of the text. Now, I think the difference between original intentions, originalism, and public meaning, originalism is actually quite narrow. Presumably they used language to effectuate their intended purposes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their intended purposes helps clarify uh, what uh, the meaning of the text they wrote is. So I think there's a lot less divergence. But look, that's how they did originalism. Look at any early opinion uh, from the martial court, pre-martial court even –
0: can that, you give us an or, example?
2: Yeah, Chisholm v. Georgia. Look at every single opinion. Look at Marbury v. Madison. Look at what they say. They'll say things like, the key is to find the, uh, the meaning. Uh, they'll often say things like, the meaning intended by the author. So there is some intent there. But they'll say, how do we discover uh, the intent of the author? Well, with the meaning of the words that they use, right? Because we expect that lawgivers use words in their ordinary signification, unless there's like specialized legal meaning. This is all over. Look at uh, another example. Is Gibbons v. Ogden, right? What is commerce, and and, and I like that case because uh, those arguing uh, against a broad commerce power, they said they wanted a strict construction. They wanted a strict construction, and I like this because people still think so, some of some conservatives still think of themselves as a strict constructionist. And John Marshall is like, what does this mean, a strict construction? <laughs> if it means more narrowly construing words than the reasonable import of the of the words uh, is, then I reject it. Uh, If strict construction means don't give an overly broad construction to the words, then then I'm for it. At the end of the day, I'm against a strict construction and a broad construction. I'm for a reasonable construction, which at some point Justice Scalia also said it's right there in Gibbons v. Ogden. So they were all originalists. If you look at David um, Curry's magisterial, the Constitution in Congress goes through all the early constitutional debates that happened in Congress. Everyone and their mothers, or I don't know if we're so (laughs) – their parents, I don't know if we're so – everyone was an originalist. Everyone was an originalist. It's just how they did law mm-hmm. uh, until more or less uh, the the progressive era. I mean, I I, I will say that in the post Reconstruction era. Um, well, well, let me back up and just say I I don't think that the Supreme Court has always been good at doing originalism. Mm-hmm. Dred Scott is a key example. Sure. Reconstruction, post-reconstruction is a good example. Mm-hmm. But it really wasn't until the progressive era where judges started to say, yeah, we're not even pretending to do this project mm-hmm. of, of discerning the meaning intended by the founders.
0: Right. So that leads into my next question. You know, originalism comes back, if you will, in the 80s uh, and, and gives itself a name, right, uh, rather than – you know, just the practice of interpreting written laws. And then the response from the left is, well, why twofold. Number one, this is just sort of a an attempt to sneak conservative results into constitutional law. That's one argument. And the second argument is, well, why should we be bound this is a very common argument right now amongst sort of progressive pundits, why should we even care what a bunch of old, dead, white, often slave-holding men wrote for a world that's very different from our own. Yeah. What do you say?
2: Yeah, well, both very important potential criticisms. The thing I'll say about the originalism is just sort of a disguise for original, uh, for conservative results. Yeah, that's well taken. Originalism can be done badly. I think originalism was a guise for a very unoriginalist opinion and Dred Scott against Sanford. I mean, there's no question that Tani got the founders dead wrong. Taney was adopting the intellectual milieu of his own Southern oligarchic at times, if you will. And there are always going to be judges and, you know, hopefully fewer Professors and scholars, but they're out there too, and certainly politicians who want to claim uh, originalism for their conservative results. And you know, one answer to that is, you know, well, would you prefer having a conservative living constitutionalist? Now, the answer is maybe, because then at least they're open about what they're doing, which is maybe what this common good constitutionalism uh, now will be. So at least they're honest about it. Maybe there is something more insidious about being secret uh, about it. But look, the evidence simply belies that claim. Every single conservative justice on the Supreme Court, so-called originalist justice on the Supreme Court, has sided with liberals on some important issues, Mm -hmm. right? Whether it's confrontation clause or certain administrative law decisions, I mean, they, they jump ship all the time, every single time. Among the last generation of liberal justices, the only one who really does it is Justice Kagan. You know, to her credit, but the others don't. Mm-hmm. The others, you know, exactly, we're going to fall on any particular uh, controversial case; they're going to fall on the liberal side. It is not at all clear what the originalist justices are going to do. Mm-hmm. So, I just think the evidence just isn't there that it is merely uh, uh, a, a rationale or a rationalization uh, for conservative results. The other criticism I actually think is is harder. Right? Why should we be bound by one, by what a bunch of long since dead white men? have said. And I'll say two things about this. The first is... I don't focus on actually the founders and you know their personal characteristics in my book. I actually downplay this initial act of popular sovereignty because I find that actually a very persuasive criticism. I don't think the Constitution is binding because the founders say it was binding, because we have to have some reverence to the founders. I think what makes law—in this respect, I'm a positivist. I do think what makes law binding is whether we the people treat it as binding, whether our legal officials treat it as binding, whether we ought to treat law as binding— a particular laws is binding is a normative question. And that is a normative debate. And for me, the question today is, should we treat the, this constitution as it has been rightly amended, you know, through the amendment process? Should we treat that as binding? It is a question of whether we the people today, as a matter of present-day social facts, continue to believe, agree, and accept that the constitution of our founders, as it's been amended, successfully balances self-government and liberty, Even though we're going to disagree about exactly what the perfect constitution would say. That's sort of the argument. Today, does it balance self-government and liberty? And you might think not. You might think not. But my whole normative argument is, you know, yes, it does, actually, Mm -hmm. quite a decent job. And you might think your uh, progressive living constitutional system might do better at it. Okay, fine and if you can convince enough people that that's true then so be it but then there are risks associated with that too because what about a conservative living constitutional right. or common good constitutional approach right and so behind a veil of ignorance what kind of system would you want one I think where we the people bind our legal officials including our judges in a document that successfully meets a threshold balance of self-govern and liberty even if you can think even if you might think that it that's imperfect in an important respect so in some respects I, I think the criticism is well taken mm-hmm. the, the, and that's why I think it's important to understand what the constitution actually accomplishes and why it should continue to be normatively binding for that reason the second point i'll say is, is look yes they were uh, uh, in some respects it's it's related in some respects if solon or lycurgus gave us the constitution do i think it's any less legitimate and binding today i don't i don't know i don't know look at reconstruction look at the 13th 14th and 15th amendments those amendments we rightfully treat as a binding. They give us equal protection of law, due mm-hmm. process of law, abolish slavery, guaranteed African-American suffrage. Why do we treat those as bindings? Well, because normatively they create this improvement upon the original Constitution of such importance that just like the original Constitution itself, we can't but be bound to that uh, improvement that our forebears gave us. Did any women participate in drafting the Reconstruction Amendments? No, did did um you know it was white men. Yes, it's true that the newly freed people in the south by the way participated in the in the southern ratification conventions. Uh, absolutely true. So they had a per- role in the ratification process, but look, the Reconstruction amendments were written by long since dead white guys. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? Right? We value it because of the content of the law that they gave us. Mm-hmm. I think that is the most important. All this being equal, does it help to have an initial democratic legitimacy, an initial act of popular sovereignty? Yes, of course, but, but, but if that were sufficient to negate its bindingness, then the 19th Amendment wouldn't be binding because women didn't vote on the 19th Mm. Amendment. But of course we needed the 19th Amendment to empower women to vote, so it doesn't make sense. It's the content that they gave us, and so long as today that content sufficiently allows us to govern ourselves through self-government institutions while protecting a large measure of natural liberty, I think that's the argument for its Mm. bindingness.
0: So on the subject of 13, 14, and 15th Amendments, you, in the second book, you call that the second founding. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah. So people sometimes criticize me. Isn't it like sort of a refounding? Uh, in some respects,
2: wasn't the original constitution ignored? Well, it depends on whether you think the constitution really was an anti-slavery or pro-slavery document. And the answer is it was, it's complicated, right? Obviously, abolition is a second founding, not a refounding, mm-hmm. right? The founders did get it wrong with respect to slavery. They did think that slavery was on the the way out. They did think it was on the road to ultimate extinction. Uh, but they turned out that they, they were wrong about that. They were wrong about that. So that certainly is a is a is a second founding. The Fourteenth Amendment is trickier because a lot of the and that's what the book is principally about: due process, privileges, or immunities of citizenship, equal protection of the laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, was this uh, merely restoring the Constitution to its sort of original understanding? Well, you know, it's it's not clear. The original Constitution was a heavily liberty and self governing or you know uh, uh, document. It had a lot of self government. Language, a lot of liberty language, but not a lot of equality language. It was missing. It was missing. It is true. It is true that sort of a background understanding was that citizenship in a republic implied equality of rights. It was sort of implied. But of course, even if that's true, you can always make reasonable distinctions. Why can you treat women differently? Why can you treat children differently? And they'll say, why can't we treat African Americans differently? Why can't we enslave certain, what they understood to be or believed to be inferior people, right? So even if it had equality, right, you, you can make what they understood to be reasonable distinctions or believed to be reasonable distinctions and nothing in the constitution said no you really have to treat citizens equally and certain kinds of discriminations are off the table and it took the 14th amendment and the 15th amendment to say you know race is certainly not a ground uh uh to, to to discriminate and so it was uh, a second founding uh, i think it was equally uh, if if not more in some respect but uh, i won't go that far it was equally as important as the first founding
0: so the book makes uh uh, applies originalism to the three big clauses in the 14th Amendment, due process, privileges or immunities, equal protection. And the claim of the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is a brief paraphrase, uh, is that essentially the originalist understanding of those three clauses is very different from the understanding that the Supreme Court has over the many years read into them. Can you unpack that for me?
2: And I'll even go... Farther than that, and say that a lot of the conventional originalist scholarship is also wrong about what they think. Okay, so
0: so what I'm learning is you must have many friends on both sides of the aisle.
2: <laughs> that, that's that's right. I've, uh, I'm invited to many dinner parties uh, <laughs> on both sides. Um, so it was uh, yes. I I, I have a lot of intra-family dis- squabbles here uh, 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 about this. Uh, so the first thing I'll say, just methodologically, what makes my book different is, I think that these provisions are written in legal language, in the language of the law. So a lot of a lot of scholars look at the legislative history of the 39th Congress, uh, which can be often quite unreliable. Just to give you one example, uh, the biggest evidence for incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states is a statement from John Bingham in 1871, or five years after he wrote uh, the, the 14th Amendment's language, Section 1's language, and he contradicted himself six weeks earlier in 1871. 18- Mm-hmm. Actually. So, you know, that's, there's some risk to using legislative history. Other people like Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick in their new book kind of focus on anti slavery constitutionalism, and they may have an unorthodox reading of the Constitution, but the readings became orthodox. And look, my claim is look, these are actually conventional legal terms that are used due process of law the protection of the laws, the privileges and immunities of citizenship. These ha- they had well-known legal terms. We can look at legal history from Magna Carta to the Statutes of Edward III to the Petition of Right of 1628 to commentaries and treatises, Blackstone, Daniel Webster's famous arguments, and American treatises like Thomas Cooley. We can look at this legal history and we can ascertain with relative confidence the meaning of these provisions, especially in light of the known problems that they were confronting. Right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the status of free black persons. Are they citizens? Do they get the rights of citizens when traveling to other states? Widespread mob violence and, of course, discrimination uh, in the black code. So what, look, in light of this legal meaning, what is, what is the key finding? And, and then I'll, I'll let mm-hmm. you come back. Okay, Due process of law is procedural. It is procedural. Due process of law just says, look, before the government can take away uh, your rights, there must be law. There must be law that you violated. They can't just say, you know, John Collier, we don't like you. Go to the Tower of London. You can't, can't do that. There must be some law that you violated that's in existence on the day of the violation. And to determine that you violated that law, we must adjudicate it according to certain procedures. Okay, so, so it's a procedural sort of guarantee. Protection of the laws is related. Protection of the laws is the legal protection the government had to give you against private interference with your private rights. So it's not just that the government can take away your life, liberty, and property. It's your neighbor. Your neighbor can commit a trespass, can commit a battery. The Ku Klux Klan, acts of private violence, mob rule, was the quintessential uh, failure of the government to provide protection of the laws, okay? So this is very important. We know that the 14th Amendment was intended to guarantee equality in rights, Mm -hmm of the, the newly freed people, of African Americans, okay? Due process doesn't guarantee equality of rights. Due process is procedural. Whatever rights you may have, will, the government won't take them away mm-hmm. without due process of law. Equal protection of the laws isn't about equal rights generally. It's about protection of the laws. Mm-hmm. Whatever rights you have, however unequal as a child or a woman or an African American, however unequal your rights may be, will protect you against the Ku Klux Klan, against other private parties, so you can enjoy and exercise your rights. So what guarantees actual equality in civil rights themselves, it must be the privileges or immunities clause. The clause that says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if I'm right about this, okay, what does it mean? Okay. It means that certain interpretations of the 14th amendment can't be right. Okay. An incorporation only view, right? Incorporation meaning the bill of rights now applies against the state's Uh, Kurt Lash believes that the 14th Amendment, um, uh, uh, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, only incorporates the Bill of Rights against the states. That can't be right because we need somehow to get equality in basic civil rights, contract, property, including gun rights and speech rights, the things that were denied the newly freed people in the Southern Black Codes uh, after abolition. So incorporation only can't be right. Uh, Kilimar has sort of this two-tiered theory, which he only half-heartedly you know, actually explores. He puts it in a footnote, so it's, it's kind of hard where he's like, well, you know, the federal Bill of Rights are guaranteed absolutely, but uh, civil rights, common law rights, are guaranteed uh, equality. That's how you get the Civil Rights Act. That's how you get equality and incorporation. But that's also weird because the Privileges or Immunities Clause – is written in such a way that whatever work a bridge does, whether it's equality or an absolute guarantee, must do that work with respect to all rights, contract rights, property rights, and gun rights, and speech rights, and search and seizure rights. So so this two-tiered theory doesn't work. That really only leaves two options. My view right now is that it is only an equality provision. The states can regulate and define the content of civil rights, contract rights, property rights, gun rights, Okay? As long as they don't discriminate in the provision of those rights. so I think a state could ban handguns. What a state can't do is say only white people are allowed to have handguns. Right? So the equality-only reading is, is, is cohesive. Mm-hmm. And the alternative is it's both an equality and a fundamental rights guarantee with respect to all rights. So not just we get maybe incorporation of the Bill of Rights um, and non-discrimination, but I think that means Lochner was right. You have to think Lochner was right. That means that there's a fundamental contract and property rights that it's up to the judges to enforce as well. It's a coherent position. The question is, you know, what's the evidence? Is it equality only or some sort of fundamental rights guarantee? This is the difference, by the way, between my book and Randy and Evan's Mm -hmm. new book, Randy Burnett and Evan Burnick's new book. They think it is that more comprehensive, it's a fundamental guarantee and an equality guarantee. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably just an equality guarantee. Why? Because, look, yeah, they assumed... That all free governments, in fact, guaranteed these natural rights, contract rights, property rights, gun rights, speech rights. They assumed they did. And all the state constitutions did, in fact, guarantee those rights. And my view is the problem was that they were just ignoring them with respect to their black citizens, Mm -hmm. right? They were uh, denying these rights that were acknowledged to be necessary in a free government uh, because they didn't believe uh, African Americans were full and equal citizens. And so I think the equality reading solves that problem. I think the evidence for a fundamental rights reading, certainly an incorporation reading, is very, very thin. That was a long explanation (laughs) of the book. Uh, Thank you for indulging me.
0: Oh, absolutely. So I want to bring the two books together uh, and sort of focus on the famous case Brown versus Board of Education, which uh, is generally – interpreted as having overruled Plessy versus Ferguson, although we know it didn't actually do that. But uh, that's a, that's another discussion. But uh, Brown versus Board of Education did not pretend to be or did not claim to be an originalist decision. Uh, and so one criticism of originalism has been that, well, if it can't justify Brown v. Board uh, – then we don't, it's illegitimate, right? We shouldn't even bother. It must at least do that. So can you bring the two books together by, you know, addressing Brown and originalism?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that question. And what I will say is that criticism, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it puts the cart before the horse. You know, what matters is what the Constitution means. But I'm actually not sure. I'm actually not sure that that's the right response. There are some things that are so fundamental. Remember, the Constitution has to meet this threshold balance of self-government and liberty such that in the eyes of the people it be legitimate. If it doesn't strike that balance by allowing segregation or, you know, that that would be – that would put this project in trouble. Not because originalism isn't the right way to do constitutional interpretation. It's the only way, I really think, to do interpretation. It's just, maybe we should ignore the Constitution. Maybe we should have a non-originalist system. Right? Non-originalism wouldn't be in a different interpretation. It would just be a theory of constitutional change. But maybe that would be a better system. right? So I do think it, it, it certainly helps, okay, the originalist project, if Brown v. Board uh, is justified. And so what I will say in my first book... I have a chapter sort of relying uh, on other scholarship like Michael McConnell showing that, look, it was probably uh, within at least the range of the original understanding of the framers as they explained in the debates over the Civil Rights Act between 1872 and 1875. All the leading Republicans, with one exception, John Trumbull. Uh, sorry, Lyman Trumbull. There are lots of Johns in the, in the but, but he's not one of them. Uh, Lyman Trumbull um, thought that the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment uh, required school desegregation. And I sort of rely on that. And then I elaborate significantly uh, on uh, that in the 14th Amendment book, the second founding book, uh, which makes a more comprehensive case. I actually think that that my equality reading of the Privileges or Immunities Clause is the only reading that successfully gets us to Brown v. Board of Education. The question is, because we know it is an anti-discrimination provision with respect to civil rights under state law. That's the claim. At a, at a minimum, it mm-hmm. is an equality provision with respect to civil rights under state law, contract, property, and so on. Is public education now a civil right under state law? A state can abolish public education. I going to be very clear about that. It doesn't have to give civil rights. I think it, abol- it could abolish property under my <laughs> view, right? which is what Randy and Evan disagree with. right? It, what it can't say is, well, we're and have property rights, but only white people can own land. Can't do that, right? So is public education a civil right in 1954, 1955? Yes, it, yes, it was. They gave it to their white citizens. Does that mean, therefore, they must uh, treat their uh, black citizens equally and give them the civil right? Yes. So the Privileges or Immunities Clause at least applies to this question, right? The, it then becomes a merits question of whether separate schools are in fact unequal, Or not, right? So, and I think that's an easy question, actually. Mm -hmm. And I would just invoke, I mean, you could look at Justice Harlan in dissent and Plessy v. Ferguson, which is obvious and compelling that we, you know, the reason the segregation laws were enacted was not to keep the races separate and happy and equal, but precisely to keep one in subordination to another. This is what Charles Black said, the legendary law professor from Yale who grew up in Texas. He's like, what's the fuss about the desegregation decisions? Once judges open their eyes to what every Texas schoolboy knows, and he was a Texas schoolboy, Right? That we did not enact these laws to keep the races happy and equal, right? but precisely to keep one in subordination Then, it's part of this system of caste legislation designed specifically with the intent to keep African-Americans in an unequal and subordinate status. So look, disagree on the merits of that? I don't know. The point is the clause at least applies. Mm-hmm. okay? Uh, and so I think uh, the case for Brown is actually quite easy, uh, certainly under the privileges or immunities, or my privileges or immunities ring. By the way, under an incorporational reading, if it incorporates a Bill of Rights, how do we get Brown v. Board? By the way, right? How do we? Get, so, oh, they might say equal protection, but no. The whole point is equal protection is narrow. Right, it's protection right. of law. Okay, so the incorporation only reading doesn't get us brown, right? So they come up with all sorts of crazy theories to get us brown, but it doesn't. It doesn't work.
0: Fascinating stuff. Well, we are about out of time, so I want to ask you one final question. Usually, we ask every guest uh, if you go back in time, talk, have a conversation with any justice. Who would it be? What would you talk about? For you, I want to add. Justice or framers, Uh, if you could pick a justice or framer, or maybe one of both, who would you talk to and what would you talk about?
2: Well, so that's – I'm going to cheat a little bit about this. Do both. (laughs) uh, Because they're in my research interest. I would love to talk to Alexander Hamilton, and I would love to talk to James Wilson. Why Alexander Hamilton? Well, because he sort of gave us this – this the seeds of what sort of this called this residual theory of executive power. This idea that the executive power clause is a residual vesting of all royal powers, executive type powers that aren't otherwise distributed in the Constitution. Like Congress gets most of the historically royal prerogative powers. You know, the Senate shares some with the President, and so on. Uh, and this comes from his you know the, the toward the end of his Pacificus essays. But he doesn't really raise the argument ever elsewhere. Uh, and I think actually that argument is sort of inconsistent with. Some things that he said in the debates over the Bank of the United States. And so I really love to ask him, did you really mean it, or are you just being a really good lawyer for the executive? Right when you were sort of making this argument in the alternative. I would I would love to pick his brain about that. And James Wilson, because he was hugely influential in you know the committee of detail and actually writing the Constitution, and a lot of new scholars seem to think that he had a much more robust vision for sort of plenary national powers. I'm highly skeptical of that. Uh, but the point is I need to take a closer w- look at James Wilson. Wilson's scholarship and I'm sure uh, and and writings. And when I do, I'm sure I'll have plenty of questions for him too.
0: Well, Professor, it's been a delight. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. GC, I thought this week might be a good time to dive into some originalism related trivia. Oh, what is the original public meaning of trivia, Zach? (laughs) Now, hold on. I'm the one asking questions here. (laughs) So let's uh, let's get started. And I'm gonna throw you a softball out of the gate here. Which former U.S. Attorney General is credited with being a founding father of originalism when he launched the Great Debate on the Proper Interpretation of the Constitution in a 1985 speech before the American Bar Association? Well, that could be none other than our very own Ed Meese. That's exactly right. Not only did he deliver that 1985 speech before the ABA— He followed it up with another lecture at Tulane University, explaining that originalism is, quote, a jurisprudence that seeks fidelity to the Constitution, not a jurisprudence of political results. Well, here's a follow-up question to that. Which justice responded to Ed Meese's speeches in a speech of his own, sparking uh, the next chapter in the great debate over the proper way to interpret the Constitution?
0: You know I'm not entirely sure.
1: I'm not entirely sure. Well, that's okay. It was a well-known liberal justice, Justice William Brennan. He said in a speech at Georgetown Law School, quote, We current justices read the Constitution in the only way that we can as 20th century Americans. The ultimate question must be, what do the words of the text mean in our time? Now, of course, Justice Brennan (laughs) was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, you're off to a good start, GC. That was a a tough one there. Uh, Let's go back a little further in history. Uh, In the early 1970s, about 14 years before Ed Meese delivered his ABA speech, the Indiana Law Journal published an article entitled Neutral Principles and Some First Mm -hmm. Amendment Problems. Who wrote this influential article? Well, none other than Robert Bork, when he was uh, still
0: a professor at Yale, I believe. Uh, Still today, that article is one of the most highly cited
1: law review articles ever written. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it absolutely is a very influential and very cited law review article. And, you know, it's interesting because while Robert Bork is known primarily for his academic work on antitrust issues, this article is widely credited with laying a lot of the groundwork for the originalist school of thought – Uh, That would come about uh, 14 or 15 years later. Mm. All right, GC, next up. Since originalism first burst onto the scenes as a formal interpretive theory in the 1980s, there have been various iterations of it and various criticisms of those iterations and uh, criticisms of originalism as a whole. Now, I think those criticisms are misguided or just plain wrong, uh, and one justice in particular agreed with me, and he famously used an anecdote about two hunters in the woods being chased by a bear to push back <laughs> against many of these criticisms. Who was that justice? <laughs> justice Scalia. Uh, would you <laughs> tell, tell, tell me the story, Zach, uh, the, the hunter story? Well, I don't think I can tell it as well as Justice Scalia did in his you know, typical flamboyant style, uh, but he said uh, two hunters are in a small tent and there's a bear outside. One hunter starts putting on his sneakers and the other hunter turns to him and says, why are you doing that? You can't outrun a bear. The other hunter says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. (laughs) (laughs) And I think Justice Scalia's point was to essentially say that, yes, while originalism might have its flaws or might not have all the answers, he only had to show that it was better than any other alternative interpretive theory available. Now, there's a great clip of Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer testifying in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, where they go back and forth, and Justice Scalia tells this story. While Justice Breyer certainly is not an originalist, he was clearly loving Justice Scalia's telling of this story and was cracking up throughout the hearing. (laughs) If you can find the clip, it's well worth a watch. All right, JC, final question. Uh, What famous book, which is a book I would recommend to all of our listeners, did Justice Scalia author explaining his views on originalism and textualism? Oh, wow. This, of course, is a matter
0: of interpretation. And I agree. Highly recommended. That's absolutely right. Well done this
1: week, GC. Thanks very much, Zach. Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you to everyone for listening. Please be sure to give us a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at
0: SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. is
1: submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.